chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there or click to there, and if you don't, that's totally fine. I'm going to have the passages up on the screen. Uh, we're going to be, like I said, we've been talking about this idea of uh, being not alone, that we were made to be in community. We were created to be with one another. Alone time can be great, but we were not meant to exist by ourselves. And so we need to build friendships that we can invest in and can invest in us to help us become better and draw us to the Lord, help us to thrive spiritually in community. We talked last week about how to navigate that wisely, being careful of who we invest in, of avoiding foolishness, and who can we catch godliness from. And so carrying this theme, we're going to get into maybe a little bit of difficult stuff today, but some incredibly necessary things today. Um, and so just on that note, I'd like to pray again and ask that God would speak to our hearts this morning. So let's pray. God, you are good and we are great, grateful for who you are. We're grateful for your love toward us, your grace and your mercy. We're grateful how you show us that, God, and also just for the privilege of being able to extend it to others. I pray you be with our church community this morning, whether we're sitting in the pews or sitting at home, wherever we're at, we pray, God, that you would just speak to our hearts. Spirit, you would do what only that you can do. And you know the things that we carry, you know the things that we deal with, things that we're processing or maybe even worried about. I pray that you would encourage, encourage us within those things this morning, God, with who you are. And so speak through your word. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Um. So I want to start off today showing you some posts that I've been sharing in our Facebook group this last week. Uh, I've been sharing some things in there, um, just offering people some different choices that they can make. Um, which of these things do you prefer? Which would you take on or get rid of? So not like hardcore theological, philosophical things, but some important life things. For example, the first one was, what does not go on a hamburger? And so there was definitely some discussion on this, and it was great to see that a good number of people had the correct answer of mayonnaise, um, but others had disagreements in that. The next one was, one of these has got to go. And so again, definitely some differences of opinion. Even as you're seeing these things, you're making your choice. Hopefully there's a lot of people choosing the Butterfinger, but everybody each to his own. It got a little more serious as the week went on. The next one was, what are the best fries? And so this was all over the board for sure. And even probably as you're looking at this, um, I personally would say Chick-fil-A, but I would just, that a platter of all nine of those just actually is the most appealing thing to me. Um, but the last two were definitely kicking it up a notch. So Thursday was choose your Chicago pizza and choose your beef. And it was interesting how the opinion on some of these things increased as we went to this. And so, again, it was also encouraging me just to know that a lot of people had the correct answer of Lou's and Portillo's. Um, then the next day was probably the most serious of all of them. You have to lose three of these projects, three of these um, worlds, and, and that means any future projects. And so people were there's definitely some passion. It was very, it was humorous to me that Fast and Furious got no love in this group. Like, everyone was voting that one off the island. Uh, I, it, it warmed my heart to not hear anybody choose Star Wars. So that was very good. Some people were just maybe trying to be nice and not want to, like, have me go at them or anything. But, uh, the, but Fast and the Furious was good. And then we kind of ended on a nice one. What was the best cereal ever? Now, 
People definitely have differences of opinions on these things. You have differences of opinions. Some of the choices that you would make on these things would be different than mine and vice versa. But it's funny because watching the conversation that happened on these, and I'm sure you've seen things like this on social media and other places, and you can watch the conversation on these, but having six of them in a row, it was really interesting to see how a couple people would be really like nonchalant, like, oh, this is fun. We can just all get along. Let's be positive. We love these things. But then there was that one topic where it was like, I can't believe you chose that answer. And they would get really, I am never going to look at you the same because that's what you picked. And there's a reality. We have those things that we, that's really important. And the fact that somebody wouldn't agree with us, that might be a little bit disturbing. Now this is all in jest, but at the same time, this is what can happen. Similar interests can connect us, but disagreements can separate us, especially if we don't respond to them well. Things will come up and we will not be on the same page. When we think, there are moments when we will think someone is wrong, and then there are those moments when someone does wrong to us. This is the nature of friendship of being in community. C.S. Lewis said this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. So love is to be vulnerable. And so when we think about the nature of connections, community, relationship, that's something that we have to realize. At the most basic level, we are vulnerable. We are vulnerable to have differences. We are vulnerable to disagreements. We are vulnerable to conflict. Disagreements, differences, and conflict are inevitable. They will happen. We can't get away from them. And so in that, I think that we need to th think about differences, disagreements, and conflict much differently. Because normally, I think typically what can happen is when we think about d disagreements, differences, and conflict, we think about them from a neighborhood watch perspective. It's the idea that there's these evil things out there that we have to avoid at all costs, and they're scary, and we can't let them in. We have to get them out. We have to protect ourselves from these ideas. But the the idea here is that that idea is coming from a place of conflict shouldn't happen, keep it out. But remember, conflict not happening is not reality. It's inevitable that we are going to experience these things. So a neighborhood watch mentality of them isn't healthy. I think a better way of thinking about disagreements, differences, and conflict would be think about working out, going to the gym. When you work out, when you're using the machines, whether you're running, whatever it is, your muscles start becoming strained. 
They can hurt for a little while. Even when you have a great, great workout, there can be hurt there because your muscles are strained, they're taxed. But that hurt is what causes the growth. We can roll our eyes at the overused phrase, no pain, no gain, but there's a reality that if we're not actually doing it to the point that there is strain, then we're not actually helping ourselves. It's the strain, it's the, it's the pressure, it's the hurt that causes the growth. And that's how we have to view differences, disagreements, and conflicts. They are an opportunity for growth. This is a completely different attitude than what's normal. What's normal is that our culture empowers us to avoid differences of opinion, block people who conflict with our ideology, mute other people's opinion, ignore the posts that annoy you. We are surrounded by options of hiding conflict to silo ourselves into like-minded thinking. And that is not biblical. That is not how the body of Christ, the church, should be. We are united in Jesus. There will be differences in how we live our lives and the different things that we resonate with in our world and culture, and that is okay. The reality is that the more we silo ourselves into our opinions and our choices and not allowing for differences, it's going to affect our relationships. When we are bombarded by lumping one another into categories rather than simply the reality of Jesus, then we become fragile in our relationships and it's easier for them to shatter and to be broken. But deep spiritual friendships are not designed to simply come and go, to fade away in conflict. Like we said last year, last week when we talked about Proverbs, we're meant to have iron sharpening iron. We are meant to strengthen one another, grow one another, and that comes through not only caring, but also confronting. We have to grow through disagreements, grow through differences, and grow in conflict. Now, it's one thing to say that, but wouldn't it be great to know how to do it? Yes? How do we navigate differences, disagreements, and conflict? Well, thankfully, we can learn a lot from what happened to the church in Ephesus. During the first century, Ephesus was like a Chicago. It was a, at that time and for that time, it was a major city, incredibly multi-ethnic, and for the, as the good news about Jesus spread through the city, more and more people began to become followers of Jesus. Different people of different ethnicities, but following Jesus. Following him, one with him, but still part of the culture and the ethnicity that they've always grown up with. Within that, even though they're united in D Jesus, the different lifestyles that they come from caused friction especially during the Jewish converts and the non-Jewish converts. Tensions began to increase to the point of even threatening the unity of this young church because they had so many differences and disagreements, even in being united to Jesus. And so Paul, one of the New Testament leaders, writes this letter to this church to address other things, but this especially, wanting them to see not only who they are, but who one another is and how to handle it. 
He spends the first half of the letter talking about how somebody enters into a relationship with Jesus. What does it mean to find life in Jesus? And then he turns the direction of what that is. Okay, if you are somebody who has found life in Jesus, then consider this. And he says this at the beginning of chapter 4. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. He says, you've been given life from Jesus, so live worthy of that life. Make sure that how you live is in sync with who he is. And that means especially where he's taking that is make sure how you live live with one another is in sync with who he is. Make sure how you treat one another, respond to one another, interact with one another. Make sure that is worthy of the life he has given you. And he says, it is a worthy thing to want to try to be united. It is a worthy thing to be patient and gracious. It is a worthy thing to put energy into keeping the peace and establishing the connections. So in that, what we need to realize is that to live worthy of Jesus means that we try our hardest to handle disagreements, differences, and conflict in a worthy manner. To live worthy of him means we work through things to be brought together, not be torn apart. And so he establishes this for them. Live worthy. Live worthy toward one another. Let this be something that you are passionate about, put energy in, and pursue. And at the end of chapter 4, he says, and here's what this looks like. The first thing he says is that worthy living means being truthful with one another and keeping short accounts. Worthy living means being truthful with one another and keeping short accounts. He says in verse 25, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So be truthful with one another. Handle your anger correctly. Now, here's the thing I need everybody to help me out with here. I want to show you something. Everybody take, if you're at home, play along with this. Take two fingers like this. And now put them on your wrist and check for a pulse. Give you a second. If you find a pulse, I can tell you that two things, you can do this if you can't find it on your wrist. If you find a pulse, I know two things are 100% sure. One, you have been hurt by somebody in your life. Two, you you have hurt somebody in your life. If you, have a, if you don't have a pulse, we need to deal with that as well. We'll talk. We have doctors here. We'll figure that out. But I want you to there is no one in here, no one listening, that that is not true about. We have all been hurt 
and we all have done hurt. So we know what it is like to be mad. We know what it's like to be hurt. We know what it's like to be angry. And whether we want to admit it or not, we know that we have caused such ourselves. And so he first tells them, be truthful with one another. Yes, there's a basic idea of not lying here that is foundational that we need to work off of. But remember, this entire paragraph is about community. It's about the tension that's there between us. It's about conflict. It's about problems between the church. And so this has to go beyond. I think it's deeper than merely the idea of not relaying false information. There's something deeper going on here. I think there's an aspect of this that what he's telling us is, between you and I, I will be honest about what's going on between us. I will be honest about the thing, about what I'm seeing, what I'm experiencing, what, how I feel. I'm not going to sugarcoat. I'm not going to bury. I'm not going to over-exaggerate. I'm going to be truthful with what's happening between us. It is not uncommon for people to transition away from churches. It actually happens all the time. Especially in our transient community, we see people who move out of the city every year, tons of people, as much as we see people move in. And it's just a natural rhythm of our church family that we've learned to deal with and appreciate. And it's part of who we are. It's one thing for just that natural flow and rhythm to happen. But then there are the moments when people leave, not because they're moving out of the city or out of state, but because there's conflict. And I've been in ministry long enough to know that when there's conflict, one of the two lines that's typically used in why somebody, to introduce the fact that somebody is leaving is one, we're not growing here anymore, or two, the Lord is leading us elsewhere. Now, again, I've been in ministry long enough to know that the phrases, we're not growing here, or the Lord is leading us elsewhere, are the Christian equivalents of, let's just be friends. A positive way of trying to say something that avoids really getting to the honest reality of what's happening. It's a way of avoiding the conflict by redirecting the emphasis of something somewhere else. This isn't to say that there aren't moments where people aren't truly going someplace. But I would say that nine times out of ten when that phrase is used, it is somebody passive-aggressively making something out to be a problem with the church rather than being honest about their own concerns and conflict. And yes, obviously God can lead someone someplace else, but too often than not, that phrase again is used to put the blame on God rather than dealing with somebody's own, God's making me do this. Let me be really clear. God is never going to lead you someplace else if there's conflict. He's going to move you toward the conflict. And so we, he moves us to work things out, to be honest, to talk things through, not to avoid it. But too often we try to use that trump card because it's like, well, who's going to argue with God? And I don't think that's the reality of what God is doing. In both cases, God is telling us, stop creating spiritualized excuses for not dealing with what needs to be dealt with. Community is fractured in the name of faith, 
when this happens and it's not how God wants his church to be. It's hard. It's difficult to have some of these conversations, but we just have to be honest and hear it. We need to grow up and talk to one another. We have to deal with things. The truthful, difficult talk in a community is what strains the muscles to grow, to strengthen, to be who we're meant to be. And when those things are avoided, no one can do anything with parting shots out the door or with spiritualized excuses. It's when we are real and honest and truthful with one another that what needs to be said is said and growth can happen, which is why this whole idea of don't sin in your anger complements this. It's not, this passage is not saying that anger is bad. It's saying if you don't respond to your anger well, that can be bad. And we are more apt to respond to conflict poorly when anger is leading us. So don't let anger lead. We need to keep short accounts, not letting things fester. Be honest and do the hard work. Because to just let it be there, to just let it simmer, is to allow the enemy to sow seeds of bitterness, and bitterness will grow and produce dissension and disunity. It's only when we are honest that the enemy has got nothing. It's only when we are truthful and we can speak to one another as members of the body that we can work through things and grow. And so that's the question that we have to be truthful about. Who do I need to be truthful with? Not over-exaggerating things. Well, all the time, never, everyone, no, just this is what's happening. This is what's happened. We need to be willing to move into those conversations, to find grace and forgiveness, and to restore unity. We, worthy living means truth, being truthful with one another and keeping short accounts. That leads to the second thing. Worthy living means taking responsibility for our lives while we build others up. Taking responsibility for our lives while we build others up. It says in verse 28, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer and must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful are building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Both in, at the end of both of those verses, you hear the idea of helping people's needs, that my words would help people's needs. That's the emphasis here. Paul has just told them, in the paragraph before the one we're looking at, he's just told them to take off their old life and live intentionally in the new life of Jesus. There was how you were before you were following Jesus. There's the things that were important to you. There's how you responded to life. There's the values that you had. But now you're somebody who's following Jesus. And that's a new identity. That's a new ethic, a new way of going about things. And you need to live within that way. And so what that means is that those of you who are stealing need to stop stealing. And you need to do something useful with your hands. But don't miss this. This isn't just a word for those who were thieves. It's, okay, what was your thing? What was the thing before you knew Jesus that characterized your struggles, your difficulties, the things that we failed in? 
And what's the opposite now? Whatever the thing you naturally would do apart from Jesus, let's intentionally do, be intentional on how Jesus wants us to be. And he doesn't want us to tear down or take away. He wants us to build up and bless. And so how do we build people up? And what is the way he tells us is the most natural way to do that? But with your words. Yes, unwholesome talk. Yes, there's an aspect of choosing the words that we use. Does the way that we talk reflect a sense of self-awareness and godliness and responsibility? Or do we just irresponsibly curse, insult, or complain, not even considering the repercussions or the consequences? But again, this is about community. It goes deeper than, am I using off-color language? It's, am I intentionally using my words to help people be better? Am I intentionally using my words to build somebody up? Am I intentionally using my words to benefit another person? So to do what Paul is talking about here, I have to put myself in somebody else's shoes. I have to stop and listen and be understand what's going on with them. I have to be empathetic to who they are so that what I say is about what they need, not what I need. Because that's the issue. Typically, when we talk about people and about where they're at in life, we speak to them in such a way to make ourselves more comfortable, not them more like Jesus. I really don't like what you're doing here. I really don't, I'm comfortable with this. You really shouldn't be be doing those things. But it isn't from a desire that we're both better like Christ. It's so that we feel better. We're trying to make people more into our image than both of us into Jesus' image. Does that make sense? And so what can I say that doesn't make somebody more like me? What can I say to help them experience Jesus and be more like him? Also speaking that self, those things into my own life. Take this to school, to work, your relationship, your marriage, friendship with your kids. Do your words build up or do they tear down? When you speak to the people that you are connected with, are you speaking to them from a place of, I'm trying to feel this, or am I trying to meet their needs and let them experience the goodness of the Lord? Worthy living means taking responsibility for our lives while we build others up. And then the last one is that worthy living means living out a goodness which shows God. Living out a, a goodness which shows God. This is a little bit bigger of a passage, but in verse 30 he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice to us, a pleasing aroma to God. Now, if you go back up to verse 30 where it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. 
uh, this weekend we went to my son Jackson's soccer game. And so uh, if you've never been to a fifth and sixth grade soccer game, it is highly entertaining. And uh, so the Moss family was there. We were cheering him on. And um, it's through his school. And so a lot of not only his, but my daughter's classmates were there and stuff. And while we were watching the game, I leaned over to Bailey and pointed at somebody on their side of the field. I'm like, who is that? Do you know that person? And when I, I said it, she looked at who I was pointing at, and her face just fell like, oh. That's just so-and-so. You could kind of hear it in her voice. And I was like, oh, what's all that about? A couple minutes later, we're standing there cheering, and Jeanette goes, oh, look, there's my brother. Her brother is visiting from L.A., and we hadn't seen him yet, and he told Jeanette he would come to the game. And so this is the first time Bailey's seen her Uncle Jimmy in, since Christmas. And so look, there's Uncle Jimmy. Her face lit up, like, looking for him. And so there was one person that when she saw and heard his name, it was... But there was another person when she, when she saw him, it was big smiles. What is this passage asking is that when the Spirit looks at you, at me, and how we are responding to one another, do we make him or are we making the Spirit frown? or have a smile based on how we're interacting with one another. I mean, because the Spirit is the catalyst of community, of reconciliation, of unity, the divine way that this happens. He wants unity, reconciliation to occur. And so we're flowing with that, yes, but if we're not flowing with that, oh, come on. And so the Spirit, go back to the different things that we've talked about. When we are truthful with one another, the Spirit smiles. But when we make spiritual excuses to avoid working through the things that need to be worked through, he's frowning. When we grow and live the new life, building up with our words, this, we make the Spirit smile at us. But when we willfully make the same mistakes over and over again, not putting in the work and just speaking flippantly, he's frowning. What else makes the spirit frown? Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice. He said, get rid of these things. It's the idea of look, view these things as rats in your house, mice, and call the exterminator, kill them, get them out of here. The things that make the spirit frown, we should not allow in our lives. But the things that make him smile, being kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. These are the things he wants to see. Because what, being our natural selves, we will lash out. We will run from problems. We will pass the blame. He tells us, don't be like yourselves. Be like God. Don't do you. Imitate God. And this is the most basic command throughout all of Scripture. Be holy as he is holy. Don't be like the culture around you. Be like God. And here he's telling us, be like God when there's disagreements, differences, and conflict. Be, follow the example of Christ. And what was the example of Christ? He befriended those who others would reject. He willfully went to a meal with somebody who betrayed him and somebody who denied him. 
He went to the cross to make reconciliation with God possible for us. And so when conflict comes up, if we're trying to be like Jesus, our typical fight or flight responses just don't work. We have to avoid these things. We have to move toward people trying to find unity, peace, and forgiveness. Does the manner in which we live and interact with people make God smile or frown? What a great question to ask the people in your life. To sit down with a really good friend, to sit down with a family member, sit down with your spouse, fiance, whatever that looks like for you. What are the ways in our interactions that I fill you up, bring joy to you, make you smile? What are the ways when we interact, when I respond to you, do I deplete you, that I make you frown, that I suck the life out? Because we need to be committed to do what needs to be done to live a life that's creating a smile in the heart of God, on the face of God, and with one another. And that's only going to happen when we're willing to process it, be honest about it, and then make the changes. Because here's the thing. C.S. Lewis puts it really potently. We are all fallen creatures and all very hard to live with. Every single one of us will cause conflict. Every single one of us will introduce hurt into a situation. We are all capable of that as much as other people are capable toward us. And so we have to acknowledge that. We have to be ready for that. And this, this goes along with the really difficult prayer that we prayed earlier, God, whatever you want to. Well, what does God want to do? He wants us to be like him. And he wants us to realize this difficulty is going to happen. That's gonna, it's going to be there. So don't avoid it. Don't ignore it. Move toward it and do the work that needs to be done. And so what work do you need to do? How is this landing on your heart? We're going to end today by receiving communion to be reminded of the compassion, the grace, the, um, the mercy which God has shown us, how he has pursued reconciliation with us so that we have something to imitate as we interact with one another. And so if you're at home and you want to grab the elements, 